for me, the dividing line is often between what the information is meant to do versus the use of this information for persuasion. That dividing line is an interesting place to, to place our scientists and our journalists in between in the sense of how hype gets generated. Hello and welcome to the Fourth Space Podcast. In this episode, Sylvie Ouellette, public scholar and PhD candidate in chemistry and biochemistry, sits down with David Secco, chair and professor in journalism, and Emily Daou-Boisvert, assistant professor in journalism, to discuss how quality scientific journalism struggles sometimes to be heard above the mass of information that is produced from so many and sometimes dubious sources. And this problem has, has been greatly exacerbated this year. And the question is, are competent scientific journalists being diluted by social media? And if so, how do we remedy that? How do we ensure that scientific discoveries and breakthroughs are not overpushed or hyped just for the sake of sensationalism, especially when those findings are preliminary? Thank you for listening. We would like to begin by acknowledging that Fourth Space and Concordia University are located on unceded indigenous lands. The Cayuncahaga Nation is recognized as custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather, and Chichage, Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. We respect the continued connections with the past, the present, and the future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. So welcome to uh, this quite exciting webinar uh, with Dr. Seco and Sylvie. Well, at last time I checked, every day there's over 300 new peer-reviewed articles published and available on PubMed about COVID-19 and the coronavirus. So there's no way the press can keep up with all this research. As a matter of fact, probably sciences themselves can keep up with the research. And another interesting phenomenon we've seen with the pandemic is uh, scientists taking over Twitter. Uh, so we, we've seen scientists kind of take their place in, in, in the public space because science is going to, so fast and some of them wanted the public conversation to, to go the right way and maybe counter misinformation and disinformation, even though they were so busy actually dealing with the pandemic, <laughs> which leads us to our team today, bridging uh, science tourism and science. Uh, it's a very large, large issue. We will only touch the surface today. There's such a massive influx of information stemming from all sources. It's quite difficult for the public to know what sources should we trust, who should we believe, and how science works, actually. Uh, so maybe to break the ice, I would ask Sylvie and David, what are their recommended trustworthy sources nowadays? For me, I'm an unconditional fan of the BBC. I, I find that they are, they are very upfront about what, what's going on, but they always maintain that reserve. They never state anything with complete authority. They, they use a lot of disclaimers and they, they're always very careful in, in their wording. But then it trickles down. It trickles down to the, the broadsheets and, and the, main, the main networks, but there's also a lot of distortion, the tabloid, the sensationalism that comes into play. And, and the problem we see more and more is a whole influx of, of Joe Nobodies who, who claim to know it all and who have Twitter and YouTube and they scream so loud that they tend to drown out the more competent press, I fear. I only trust my wife, um, basically. And, and That's a good answer, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, in that kind of a way. But, but um, I'm actually like, um, I love the mishmash 
Um, I'll be perfectly honest, right? Like I have to be, you have to be critical. You have to think through, but um, I'm happy to, to be reading um, like Andre Picard and Aaron Durfel and some of the legacy media um, that's out there. So I understand that certain journalists that you trust, like you trust Andre Picard and there are trustworthy journalists in your eyes. I think there's a little bit of each, but what I will say, and that trust only goes so far, even with them. Like I'll even bug Andre at times to be like, you sure? And um, he's very good at saying um, he is a collector of things and he's not trying to go that way. But what I'll say is that it's a hard one, right? Because I'm willing to be surprised and willing to take a chance on new and different information. Um, but I have to consistently remind myself about, okay, who is this person? What are they trying to do? Do I even know if they're a person? You do find yourself going back to the places sooner or later that you've always trusted and given the information that seems of value to the questions you have. So for me, even though I'll go virtually anywhere, I, I do find myself going back to those particular journalists at times. Yeah, of course. Uh, with that in mind, Sylvie wants to tackle a particular example. It's just an example. There's so many other examples we could have taken today. But this one is interesting because it's a Quebec example. Uh, on January 22nd, it was a Friday, a Friday slow in the newsroom, difficult to reach people for a reaction. Uh, the Montreal Art Institute released its preliminary result in the press release of its called Corona study, reproposing the drug she's seen as a possible treatment for COVID-19. But on January, the result had yet to be published and peer-reviewed at the time. And only the press release was available with limited data. And over the following days, news media around the world relayed the result in multiple languages, uh, stating the main conclusion of the press release that the drug reduced hospitalization and death with a certain hype, we should say. Uh, in the days and weeks that followed, however, the publication uh, of the preprint happened on January 27th on Med Archive, and there was closer scrutiny on, on Twitter uh, and other platforms. And it was decided by El Canada later on that the evidence was not compelling enough to recommend the treatment outside of a clinical study. And to this day, the study is still awaiting publication in a peer-reviewed uh, journal, so it hasn't been accepted uh, anywhere, and we, we have no news about it. So what went wrong, or, or who jumped the gun, or was it right to uh, relay this news while we it wasn't published in a peer-reviewed journal. This, this was a good example for me, but this is not a judgment on the quality of the research. It's not about the study itself. It's just uh, a way to illustrate how events unfolded. Uh, first of all, like you just said, the press release came out uh, on a Friday. From, I, I saw it on the Saturday, but I understood it was out on the, on, the, on the Friday, which right then and there created a bit of a, of a hurdle. Uh, to get into news and shop, and it was not peer reviewed. I think everybody has to share some of the blame in this story, in that as a researcher, to release these results and claim that you had obtained something worthy of uh, making colchicine available for treatment, uh, to me was premature. And then, of course, the whole machinery behind uh, the media relations at the Heart Institute perhaps also jumped the gun a bit too quickly. And of course, given the circumstances at the time, we are in the middle of, of a worldwide pandemic and everybody's looking for hope. Everybody wants to be done with this. It just took off from there in the space of three or four days until we saw that it hasn't been peer reviewed. The numbers have been crunched by an independent source. So it died. And I don't think that Colchicine will ever be part of the pharmacopoeia for, for COVID. But for a span of about three or four days, suddenly 
the world was so relieved. Hey, we have something, but that's quite sad. Who's to say that um, the, the review might prove favorable in the end? But at this point, I think it's doubtful. But yeah, so on all fronts, the researchers, the media relations at Hart Institute and the journalists just took it and ran with it perhaps prematurely. Obviously, there's a context of, of wanting to know about new drugs, wanting to know about the study and playing in there. It's, it's a fun debate. This is where we might have some fun, Amelie and Sylvie, in the sense of um, I could easily argue that um, they save billions of dollars by um, destroying the reputation of this drug in four days. What could have taken months and months and months of study because the media looked at it, wrote about it, right, um, got lots of public attention, and other scientists looked at it and then said, no, this doesn't look like it's going to work, that that stopped things, which otherwise would have went on a lot longer. Now, I'm not sure I believe that, but you could see an argument that exposure, that light, that thing that the science journalists might want to bring to this, that, oh, there's this new study. Now they've released a press release. You've said something to me, and it's now my job to say someone to someone else. Yeah, so those questions, they can be good, but they can also be negative. I hear exactly what Sylvie's saying in the sense of it could have gotten all sorts of hopes up and things going that might have been saved or not done. And there's other examples where definitely these things play out and they, they add so much um, confusion that it's a, it's a big problem. And that's why I like this example, because it's right for me in that gray area of, did the journalists really help? Maybe they didn't ask exactly the right questions. Like, Amelie, I know how hardcore you are and how you might have torn this thing apart. And Sylvie, you too. But I, I know um, there's probably two approaches. Like, one, well, this is kind of interesting. Um, if I don't write about it, someone else is going to write about it. And I look like I lost um, my, my like, scooper or my ability to be involved in this. Like, Journal of Montreal is writing about it. And someone else is writing about it. I should be writing about it, too. The other element might be that they're actually interested and they wanted some questions answered. And whether or not they got enough of those to write the stories, that's, that's where the fun debate about journalism practice comes in. This is the first time that we are seeing science evolving in real time. Usually, we never get to see and, and disseminate these results until everything's been sorted out and the trials ran. And most of the time, it's over and done with by the time it's, it's released. Whereas now, because of the situation, we see things, there's a massive influx of information, right, left, and center, people trying with ivermectin, people trying with the dexamethasone, all at once because of the urgency and so many preprints being made available and everybody can have access to this. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the knowledge and don't have the background to truly appreciate what's in such a press release. It's been proven that uh, false information travel uh, really faster than true information. Uh, so that, that's part of the problem too. Uh, but how can we prevent misinterpretation of, uh, of scientific studies? I think through proper training, and it's only through, through uh, a continued effort to reestablish their credibility and validity that, that the media will be able to eventually show they, they are a voice that needs to be listened to. But it's, it starts with training on, on both sides. I mean, I think scientists should be better equipped to interact with the media and, and to convey their science in, in a matter that can be easily understood by everyone. But also on the journalism side, how do you train journalists to become specialists, to, to be able to read and explain press releases and preprints and preliminary results and the study results? So this is one of those questions where I, I, it's, it's, I'm hard-pressed to know exactly that there's a really good answer um, that will always be there because some form of hype um, is required, right, to, to envision, like, the futures we might want to live in. But hype can quickly get very negative in that kind of a sense. 
And um, so for me, the dividing line is often between um, what the information is meant to do, like um, how is somebody supposed to use it? When are they going to find it when they need it? How do they think of it? It's trustworthy. So a lot of that comes to training and to thinking about the science to think about who's saying it and why in that sense versus the, the elements of the use of this information for persuasion. And I think um, that like uh, kind of dividing line between how, um, how information might just be put out there for different uses and how it might be used to persuade certain kind of political or views or viewpoints or to gain certain kind of advantages um, is an interesting place to, to place our scientists that we were talking about and our journalists in between in the sense of what the roles are, how hype gets generated and played out. So I'm not exactly talking uh, about an answer, but what I will say is the context around, um, and I know we often throw this around, but like the context around how a study is released, um, how it's not peer reviewed, how the data might look like this, how we, we want to anyways communicate it to the public for these reasons. I'm not sure all those kind of transparent contextual information were in the press releases or the, the, the journalists that took a look at this or the people on social media that tweeted this were really beginning to, to play those things out. So I think hype, the challenge is that um, it grows quickly and exponentially without you even realizing. So the only way to, to really potentially fight it is often um, with like almost like a mental integrity of freedom where you're trying to say, okay, what here is information that I can definitely verify and I know it's true, or I can say that I don't know it's true. And then what here can I say is, seems like a bunch of hype or seems like a bunch of questions you don't have answers to. And how do I get people to like digest both within a global pandemic and being really tired and me only wanting to listen to my wife? Yeah, and we've seen other kind of hype uh, on the other side with with uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, uh, one case of a rare blood clot making the front page. At the very least, journalists should be trained on how to read a scientific publication. Whenever you see something about, oh, a promising drug to cure cancer. Well, first of all, uh, what is this? Who funded this? Uh, what's the size of the cohort? Was it prospective or retrospective? Uh, what all the, the details in there, the data analysis, uh, it, it doesn't take a, a PhD, but it takes a strong scientific background to, read, to be able to read such a paper. And um, a problem I often see is sometimes it's the same journalists covering health and covering uh, physics. And, and recently, somebody on the Vezio Canada was explaining how the vaccines work. And then a couple of days later, he was analyzing uh, the landing on Mars of the Perseverance rover. And I'm thinking, how can somebody, I think the media should have their go-to people for the various fields of science and, and make sure that they are kept abreast of the developments and, and have the basic knowledge for the science they're going to be covering. Thank you, Sylvie. Uh, this is a very interesting uh, answer. I'd be curious, Dave, uh, what, what do you think? Can science journalists cover science as a whole or can uh, non-science journalists cover a very uh, tricky health question or can we do it all or do a journalist need to be overly specialized in health or astronomy or physics to cover such, uh, such topics? So I think all is possible. And that's one of the things I love about journalism is that there's no one career path. But I'll say that if we had none in each of the categories you're talking about, Emily, like we had no specialists and all generalists, I would start to get worried. If we had all specialists and no generalists, I would start to get worried. If we had no Sylvies who could be right in the middle, specialist on some things, generalist on other things, I would start to get worried. So I like a space, a media space 
even though it could get really clouded. And some people are very good at screaming loudly about misinformation. But I like a media space where there's a lot of different diversity, but we can find to exactly that first question, the person who is the specialist in this moment and is talking about this thing in the most coherent, articulate way, and that we can help amplify their message when it needs to be amplified and not amplify some of the others, but that we still have, because sometimes the generals will ask a question that even though I think I know a lot about something, I'm just like, wow, I never would have thought that way because I just was not approaching it there. I was way down in the trenches and I was down there, like not even thinking about like how this community would think about it or something. So I think we, we need some balance. And on the other side, how can we better equip scientists themselves in how to handle the public communication of their results? How can we equip scientists because they have their, their share of the responsibility here? Well, that's often down to the institution with which they're working. There has to be some kind of intermediate press relations or media relations to help them along. You cannot just uh, rely on scientists to disseminate their own results to the general public. There has to be a a machine behind them to support them. And there again, we we need individuals who are well-trained. But at the the same time, institutions, because of the nature of research, you want to be out there. You want to be, you want your name to come out because uh, eventually you'll want funding. So the more... The, the better reputation you have with regards to putting out results, the more likely you are to receive funding further down the line. So, and, and again, this is something that, that we see all the time, the big names uh, putting out a lot of research and then getting the big funds. So it's a bit of a vicious circle in, in that sense. But uh, yes, so the scientists being trained perhaps uh, more towards scientific communication. Like at Concordia, the biology department offers to grad students, it offers a scientific communications course. And I don't know whether other departments do it, but I think this this should be mandatory in every department. I know grad pro skills at Concordia also um, include some communications uh, training, but it it should be mandatory across all disciplines, I think. Yeah, like, I mean, mandatory, like, is uh, interesting because when I was uh, doing my science way back when it's a long time ago, like, there was nothing, like Sylvie's saying, like, like it was there, but you really had to hunt it down. There was no expectation that you would go in to your doctoral studies and you would get some training in communication or even that you would get some training in ethics, which I now know the program that I went through now has that. So what I'll say is um, we run a summer school now, as Sylvie and Amelie, you both know, um, and I love that course in biology. That's related to bringing science students in and exposing them to some of these issues, getting some training in digital media, getting some training in social media, um, giving it a try in that sense, also creating some narratives and some storytelling. But what part of the thing that I see as um, one of the most valuable that often comes out of that is to put them right into this the scenario we talked about. They're the journalist who's covering the study that has the press release. They're forced to do it in quick time because the journalist, let's say, gets two or three hours to write their stories. They might get one source or not. But I think that kind of attempt to ask both a journalist to put a scientist mindset on and a scientist to put a journalist's mindset on and then almost role play by having some of that. And I know I don't know how you feel about this, Sylvie, because I know you've been in both worlds. But for me, sometimes they feel exactly the same. Like there's no divide. I could use my science brain, my journalism brain. If they're different, they're the same thing. (laughs) Um, Sometimes I do feel like I need to be in different spaces. So I think getting those students or getting those researchers to experience those different public spaces and experience them sometimes very viscerally, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I made that mistake. And now all these people are going to think their grandparents should get X and they might be saved. um, And I should have been more thoughtful about that. Or, oh, this data, I I wasn't I really shouldn't have held that press conference with this data yet. I should have like toned it down a little. 
um, I think is a useful kind of space. But I agree with Sylvie that the more we can do training and try to address these questions together as in groups, the better off I think will be when you find yourself as a surprise in a situation like this, as a scientist or a journalist. When, when I did journalism uh, several years ago, the, it, the, the focus was put on, it was a major in journalism, but they encouraged us to do a minor in, in what would eventually become our beat, be it science or political science or history, so that we could develop some kind of expertise in parallel to our journalism expertise. What I was very happy to see this year is the journalism department is now offering a minor in scientific journalism for science students. So th this is where they, they cross paths. I know that at the moment, I think it's only at the undergrad level, but I, and there's also the grad dip program that very few people know about. Unfortunately, uh, myself in the past three or four years, I have directed fellow grad students towards the grad dip because they realize, well, research is not really what I want to do. I want to do more communication. And I, I was telling them, well, journalism offers a graduate diploma program. You already have a degree in science, then you can do a year intensive training, go into communications because now you have the background in science let's do journalism or the other way around. First, develop your skills as a journalist, but in parallel, uh, find, find a beat uh, that, that will suit you. But at the graduate level for grad students, masters and PhD, especially PhD, uh, this year I was part of the public scholars cohort. And again, this is another avenue. Mind you, there was only 10 of us. It's only 10 per year, but this, this is something that encompasses uh, how, how to keep a presence on social media, writing op-ed pieces for, uh, for the Gazette and other outlets, organizing events, uh, knowledge dissemination such as this one. So we were trained for that. And I think there should be more of, of that. And across Canada, I think we're, we're the only university offering such a program. And, and there, there's a big need. There's a massive need for more. It's always amazing to, to see that many scientists are, are eager to combinate and be out there and uh, talk to journalists, talk to young students who won't even you know, publish their stories. It's just for a class and they'll give an interview and give their time and explanations. So this is so valuable. It's it was such a great conversation, Sylvie and David. Thank you so much uh, as well for being here. Don't hesitate to reach out to us to continue the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Fourth Space Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at CU Fourth Space, and wherever else you find your podcasts. The podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced by Anna Voklovec. Editing by Chloe Lalonde and Mackay Hawkrow. Social media and web support by Kari Balmstead. Our theme music is courtesy of Supercontinent. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.